Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. I am joined today by Dr. Rodney Bates and Miles Kelly. I first came into contact with both of these men when I took the intro to African and African American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Bates was a professor for the class, and Miles led a guest lecture on black male patriarchy with Kayla Storrs. And it was one of the first times I was introduced to this subject matter. Since then, they have been examples of black men doing the work from an intersectional lens, and particularly on other men. Miles and Rodney talk about their journeys and the work that they do to disrupt patriarchy, sexism, toxic masculinity, and the oppressive socialization process. We discuss the history of patriarchy in the black community, fraternity life, and this work on college campuses. Let's get into it. So I'm joined today by two guests, Miles Kelly and Dr. Rodney Bates. Miles Kelly is a proud HBCU graduate and truly believes in education for service. Without a background in the fashion industry, his originality and passion for style have allowed him to stand out as a personal stylist for five years. Though his purpose rooted in teaching, supporting, advocating, and encouraging students to trust their dopeness, 9 to 5, Miles is a student affairs professional and he serves as the director for the Henderson Scholars Program at the University of Oklahoma. Next, we have Dr. Rodney Bates, who is director of graduate student and postdoc retention and support in the graduate college. Dr. Bates supports many aspects of the graduate college's mission by providing direct mentorship and coaching to graduate students and postdocs, working with academic units to improve their climates, providing workshops and training to faculty, and enhancing the graduate college's ability to recruit, support, and retain students and postdocs from historically underrepresented groups. Dr. Bates completed his PhD in adult and higher education at OU in 2017. Dr. Bates' research focuses on African-American males' experiences at historically white institutions, as well as on dominant and resistant notions of success in higher education. So welcome to you both, Miles and Rodney. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being having us and happy to be here. Yeah. To start out the conversation today, I wonder if you could both talk a bit about your journeys as men and how you got to a place where um, you wanted to begin working on your own masculinity and sort of where you first saw that as this normative masculinity as maybe a, a problematic notion. Um, so, and like my bio mentioned, I went to an HBCU, and so when I was an undergrad, a lot of my experience was rooted in leadership and the way that men were supposed to navigate the college campus. A lot of it was we wore suits and we were professional and men do these certain things. Um, and so for me, it wasn't until I got into my graduate work and I just started looking at different things um, and looking at different authors and um, really, honestly, feminist work, essentially, that I began to kind of reposition some of those initial ideas and the thoughts around um, masculinity work and uh, what masculinity is and what it really shouldn't be and what it, what it can be. Yeah, just a disclaimer, I just want to tell the audience that this is pretty much my voice, so sound real hoarse and all that. It's just a raspy person, but uh, my journey would, would really begin in my uh, doc program. 
I began taking classes that really challenge, you know, critical ideas of what gender, class, and race look like. And I was very fortunate to, you know, have some uh, women in my program that um, would also challenge me to think about what it meant to be, you know, a man and masculinity. And, and I also want to say that I think there was, in the back of my mind, the way I was raised with my grandma and my mom, so, you know, I can always tell that when I was doing these things, it didn't sit right. But, you know, you normalize it and kind of push through it. But, you know, I would credit them that it was always a something's up, mm. but I don't quite know what it is. And when I got into the program, was able to put um, some definitions and some understanding with it. And so that pushback, right, in, in your program... Um, and, and, and maybe also some pushback or some new sort of theories or what have you coming through, you know, feminist thought or what have you. Um, what was that initially like for you having grown up, maybe not thinking about these things, at least specifically or intentionally? It wasn't really much of a pushback because when I like looked at my life, like pretty like kinda at a glimpse, a lot of things were kind of consistent. Uh, so like I felt like my mom was kind of the, the main breadwinner. My mom was like the, the leader of our house, really like my pastor. Um, as a woman, so that I grew up in the church, so like a lot of women were actually leading a lot of capacities in my life, and kind of like the um, the go getters and the ones that do all the things. And so it wasn't like it wasn't um, new really for me. It was more like the why wasn't I getting this information, particularly for me around like black feminist thought and theory. And I went to a black college. I knew like the boys. I knew all like the the black men and black critical thought thinkers. But like I didn't know like any of the black women that were doing. Well, you know, you hear sort of Hurston, but like you we weren't we weren't learning them in the same capacity. And even though, and, like in some ways, my own frat- in my fraternity experience, you were taught leadership in a certain way, and like we do these we lead these to this capacity. But like it was particularly around the conversation around black male patriarchy mm-hmm. and what that looks like and the overlooking of black women. Uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and like seeing how that that was a trend throughout history, um, like basically from enslavement going forward. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was just like you went to a whole black college, were there for a number of years, and you were in the black heritage like library, and you never saw these books, you never thought about these things. So it was kind of like a did I waste my time in my undergrad experience, mm-hmm. and then so then I tried to like soak up everything to like learn it. Uh, so it wasn't a, a major shift because a lot of it just, it just makes sense. Um, and also like got to the point where it creates space for a language to be able to articulate things a lot better. Like this makes sense in these ways now and, I, and I'm able to articulate myself as a person navigating the world also a lot better because of that. <clears throat> yeah, mine's a little different. I had, you know, my pushback was more internally, right? So, you know, I knew, you know, being angry and mad at being called out in front of women didn't sit right with me. But by myself, I was angry, right? Like, you know, I thought I was this self-proclaimed ally, and I was like, I'm trying to help y'all while y'all going off on me. And so that's the, that reflection that I didn't really get to deal with until it was, you know, in my face. And then I just kind of began to ask myself, why am I angry? What made me so angry about what statement they said to me, you know, about masculinity or why? it was normal to do something as a man and I got called out that that's not normal it's like who are you what the you know and so but I, I and I don't like confrontation so I think a lot of that I just suppressed um but once I started reading more literature and more theories um begin to say okay I've been conditioned to think this way you know religion and even some of the growing up right growing up with my my mom she was very religious, so there's just some um, reinforcements right there. And so, again, um, I, 
I've always said women have done so much laborious work, right? And so, sadly, I was a product of them doing work and easily, well, not easily, but once I realized, hey, they don't need to do that work. I need to be doing that work, you know, which brings me to what I wanted, like me today. Mm. Me doing that work with other men because I didn't know. So then how do I do that work so it's not burdensome on, on women or queer and trans bodies and so forth? What was some of that literature that y'all were diving into and who are those people that you point to that helped you and have helped you and continue to help you to kind of... So I think for me, the, the part that's a very particular experience and somewhat a privileged experience, because I was doing this at the graduate level as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of it was I had... So professionally, I look back now, like I think I'm really blessed because I've worked for dynamic women as supervisors. Mm-hmm. And so one of my supervisors was Lauren Whiteman and Lauren was like, you need to read all this and then we could talk about it. So a lot of it was Patricia Hill Collins, uh, Audre Lorde, it was Bell Hooks, and so like it was a deep dive into all that. And I got the opportunity to have uh, Patricia Hill Collins came to campus when I was a grad student. And so like being able to hear her work and her lecture, it just kind of became like a full deep dive into like what this looks like and how do we begin to teach these things to really college students and college men to where it makes sense for them and also like normalizing the experience of what the like what I was in with the navigating because like my, I think my experience is, is a little bit different than a lot of people's, mm-hmm. but normalizing. But a lot of it was bell hooks and um, Audrey Lawrence like, and when I read it, it was like a, this makes total sense for me. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't. It would. It really wasn't like a. There wasn't a lot of like discomfort. It just made total sense to me. I was like, why? Why was I not reading this before? It just makes sense. It's, it's about a collective. It's about like mm-hmm. us all thriving um, together, opposed to one one particular group thriving. So I was like, this makes total sense for me. So once I got my hands on it, I was like, what else can I read? What else can I read? Or how do I also then from there read it and then I actually apply it and somehow. <clears throat> so particularly it was uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality. And I actually was reading about her frameworks in law. So I was coming out of, a, I mean, I'm in the discipline of education, but a lot of her work is dealing with law policy and equity and I had always wanted to go to law school, but, you know, I was like, I'm too far on my path to, mm-hmm. to veer off. So I began reading about property, and that is where it clicked for me, that women were viewed as property, slaves were viewed as property, and I saw that kind of connect between race and gender, because mm-hmm. I've always seen things as raced, but not gendered, right? Mm-hmm. And then Kimberly giving that explanation for black women who are gendered and raced, um, it just clicked for me, and from there, Bell Hooks, Patricia Collins, Lisa Boleg does a lot of work really with methodology and intersectionality, mm-hmm. and so that really helped me to put it in practice, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that people are aware of intersectionality, but if you're not putting it in practice, then it's, mm-hmm. it's really not going to help. So, but Lisa Boleg was was one of uh, another scholar that's out there, and so those were some of the literature started reading more about uh, colonialism, right? And so how these frameworks aren't given to us because of colonialism right now. You know, we have this one set of learned literature, whether it's um, Eurocentric or in this case, patriotic, right? Mm-hmm. So begin to kind of see how that pattern existed and from there it really clicked and I knew. The other part I would add to that is like, in like kind of unique and best case scenario for like me as a young professional, Rodney was already working on campus and was doing this work. And so like, I was seeing how he was doing it, like working with a college chapter and a fraternity mm-hmm. and like teaching these things. So, like then I got to kind of sit and kind of 
and so like when we started doing the work and not putting the, the, the labor on women, mm -hmm. I got to ask him a lot of my questions before I was asking like a Lauren Whiteman or women on campus that I was like going to like for counsel and support also and um and just like trying to be better. Mm -hmm. So I got to like partner with him and ask some of those questions that I was trying to process through and figure out opposed to putting labor back on women. So like that also like kind of having that community on campus was beneficial as well. Mm -hmm. What is that sort of the mentorship, but also you both have been in capacities here at OU, so on a college campus, taking that theory to practice, right, and actually implementing it, particularly with college men, um, but you both have been advisors for MPHC, for black fraternity, for these organizations. So what does that sort of look like for you all, and what are some of the maybe barriers or difficulty to, to getting them to, to grasp some of that? I think one thing is, like, a lot of the historical doctrine of MPHC orgs, I think is presented in a certain way that is not as radical or as, as revolutionary as it really is. So I think if you look at any of the divine nine organizations, you're talking about a, a couple decades from enslavement, really. Um, you're talking about, about black folks in college. I mean, navigating that space. So I think that's the part that's quite radical, but like a lot of it was just trying to help college men particularly in my organization understand like that radical approach and just being really understanding when we say certain things about our organizations it has to mean what it says so in my organization i'm an alpha we talk about love for all mankind so i was really encouraging that when we talk about that and love for all mankind it has to mean black queer folks it has to mean trans folks it has to literally mean love for all mankind means all is the key word mm -hmm. so it can't mean cisgender christian black folks it needs to be literally all mankind uh, but not the biggest thing is essentially calling call out is one of the things that i had to learn really quickly as on campus advisor so when you're in a group me and there's conversation or talk going uh, whether it's homophobic sexist or um whatever learning how to best educate and so if you're in a group me space do you say something uh, sometimes what i had to learn was in group me spaces how to create a counter narrative and then call that person in opposed to doing a long thread in group me of getting somebody together because you can i'm getting them together is really just me kind of like yeah i'm doing the work but they're not learning anything because they're going to scroll past it but i might create a counter narrative and like hey that's inappropriate or wrong in these ways and then pull that person in for a conversation did you see my message and then like i'm gonna walk you through what i was saying so you can hear what i'm saying also i mean it's incredibly difficult not that you know we get a pat on the back or oh whoa is you i mean that's just the work right I mean, these fraternities are, you know, breeding grounds for misogyny and sexism and, you know, those things. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as men, we get to walk away. And so I relish in the fact that, you know, I need to do that work, no matter how difficult it is. But the barriers are, you know, how normalized it is. And so, you know, saying something, I've had to kind of really do a trial by error. You know, let me try this route. That wasn't a good route. Let me try this route. That wasn't a good route. And so, um, but over time, um, and I've said this in my Men in Masculinities course, <clears throat> I talk about the group me that I'm in with approximately 17 fraternity members. And if we could literally do a study from three years ago to now, the progression has moved. Just, it takes time, but you need someone that's going to be there to challenge and, and, and in some cases, right, you figure out strategic ways to, call men in and say, this is what this really means. Been days that I've wanted to give up, mm -hmm. um, but then I see some of the pain um, and violence that men cause to women that live through it every day. So gotta get in there and challenge them. And I also think that you have to realize that you, you're dealing with 
college men particularly in this situation for us that have pretty much been baptized and raised and indoctrinated in this for 18 years of their life mm -hmm. and so some it's like you are literally presenting the first counter narrative to what it means to exist and be male mm -hmm. in society so like you have to take that as like the okay i'm at least doing like the bare minimum and like give them a chance like it has to be a learn they have to really learn it it's like learning is a process mm -hmm. um so that's part of like the when I was able to do that, it helped me a lot because I couldn't expect them to like we do a workshop and then like y'all get it like they're gonna mess up in the process also and I can't be mad about them messing up either. Well, and I also not necessarily argue, but I always say, you know, oftentimes we see well, what if people are so resistant? I mean, I think there's a difference between if you have a troll that you don't know you have a relationship with and they're trolling and making it worse <clears throat> versus someone you have a re relationship. You might be willing to deal with that and be more patient and work through it. And, and I think that's where the work really is, is with family members and friends and people that you really have relationships, not on Facebook or social media trying to come for someone. You know, you don't know them. So I, I'd say do that work with the people you know. What have been some of those routes that have been uh, difficult? You know, I, I uh, just recently, uh, my womanism and black feminism class, uh, we're reading How We Get Free by Kianga Taylor, um, where she looks at the Combahee River Collective Statement um, and the interviews like Barbara Smith and Alicia Garza from BLM. And I'm thinking about the ways that in that statement, right, they talk about some of the struggles of organizing around black feminism, right? You know, much of the reason they were doing that was because they were calling for this really radical revolution led by this black feminist framework, right? So I wonder if you all can talk about, to get us to a place of like best practices or what has worked for you all, uh, what have been some of those failures or some of those routes that you've taken that just haven't worked or haven't made it click for uh, whatever men you're working with? Let's be honest, uh, men are fragile. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the egos, you know, so I don't necessarily think the best practice is to come in there thinking that you know it all. Now, truth is you probably know more, and I know that I have known more with my friends, but they're not really going to accept you because they're like, here go Rodney again. And so for me, one of the best strategies that I've used is is more of a collective conversation. Well, let's hear your ideas and then ask them why do they think that way and let them get to the root. That And really in most situations, they come to the conclusion that was pretty dumb. Yeah. But to come off and say, here's the facts and you're dumb, you're not going to reach much. They're just going to turn you off. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've definitely scaled back. You know, and I used to go in, I was angry because they were saying these things. And I'm like, y'all going off. And, you know, they would come back with just the same energy. Yeah. Whereas now, I think, you know, having a conversation. Or I think one-on-one, -on -one, I think, Miles, how the best, is it a one-on-one -on -one time that you can do to say, can you help me understand your perspective and then counter them? Because they don't want to be countered publicly because, again, that fragility of, of how men, you know, act. So I think that's one good way um, of, of doing it. I think the one-on-one -on -one is really good. I think it's just like it's really a trial by error. So some of the things that I've done is, like, when I became an advisor on campus, they asked me to be an advisor. And I, what I do, I stated my position of what I believe. 
fraternity advisor, a campus advisor for the uh, for the alphas. Yeah. So like what I did was like, this is what I believe. So I believe in our national stuff, and I believe it for me it means these things. So you you want to do this, and so I'm the kind of person where like when we had situations like like show and tell events and and or did something that may not have been the most appropriate or um, sexist in these ways or misogynistic in these ways, and they were talking about well that was them, and they just like well y'all did these things. Mm-hmm. So like and but, but what you did. Because, like, for example, an event happened on campus and Org did some things. And so a conversation I had with some of the chapter members was like, well, you know, well, they were wrong. I said, but you played a Chris Brown song. And Chris Brown is known for putting his hands on a woman. And he also is known for, like, having conversations around dating women that are racially ambiguous and look at color and colorism conversations. Like, y'all are also wrong as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's not just, we're not going to point fingers at them, but also knowledge that y'all solutions in the process. So, like, being able to make, like, every opportunity a teachable moment, but also, like, making sure it's consistent across the board. So we're not going to, like, point at this person or point at that person. I realize that we're doing, we're doing work over here and doing wrong at the same time. And I think also, like, creating opportunities for learning that engage the college students. For me, it's like making sure I'm sticking to like to the culture and using hip hop and like things that they relate to so that it makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't just pull bell hooks out or um, Kim and Crimson, like it's a great framework to use, but like it has to make sense for them. So I gotta talk about how, why Megan Thee Stallion's artistry is important because it positions women in a position of power and like a, a space that we haven't seen female MCs talking like that honestly mm. it makes them think in a different way because they, they know make the style and they like her music or whatever but like oh it's a different or the city girls for example mm. so i have to find ways to connect them back to what they're talking about mm. so to me it's creative and it's fun because i'm able to do that part of it and what i'm seeing is like a um, small traces of like disruption right or, or these counter narratives in conversations or um, in times of advisement or what have you you know, and I think that's a huge part of it, right? Because so much of it is for 18 years, right? I've been in doctrine and probably very few people, if any, have ever called that out, right? Or, or called them in to say this was problematic in this way, in these ways, right? Or you're, um, you know, performing a really violent or um, harmful form of masculinity or your gender, right? And also, and I know this kind of either borders interest conversion, but I think you you have to kind of break it up, right? Like, it would be ideal to be like, hey, this is the problem when people do 180, but that's it's not a realistic perspective. So in most ways, I try to approach it from, this is also harmful for you as a man, right? Like, I want you to do it because it's the human right thing to do, but it's, it's taking you some time to get there. So perhaps you need to understand, like, this doesn't benefit you. And then it's a, this, this reflection of like, oh, well, if I'm harming myself, which, I love myself, maybe I shouldn't do these things. And, and then I also try to make the connection of examples of like gender versus race, right? That they can easily get angry about racism done to them. And I'm saying the connection can also be made that women are angry about the sexism done to them. And here's how that is played out, right? And so. As I remember once uh, when I first got into the f- my full-time role, there was an article, I think it was on Very Smart Brothers online, and it was about like basically student engagement on college campuses, and it was like where the brothers at. And it was an article about how in large part of the college campuses, women are running BSAs or student government associations on college campuses across the co- country. And so like we had a we had a brief little session where we talked to a couple of guys about that. And we're like, well, that's not true because we're doing these things. But I was like, but you're not doing it with BSA, so like you're not mobile. Like essentially, the community work on campus, particularly at this institution, is done by Black women. And they were like, "Well, I didn't look at it that way." Because I mean, I'm, I'm involved with MPHC or my fraternity, but like I didn't look at it that way. And so I kind of expand that perspective. And then I'm also the kind of person where like 
I kind of like the discourse. Um, so like there was a trending topic on Twitter a couple of years ago, and it was basically in um, words and shit. And so I use that in my presentations now because it really irritates, particularly black men. Uh, and so I, I reframe it that it's essentially, it's a strategy that black women use to get black men to have the conversation. When black men hear that, it's like, oh, it's not like you're attacking me or my manhood. It's like you want me to have a conversation because like essentially black women love black men in ways that black men don't love black women. <laughs> but like to the, the beginning of time, they love and support us like in ways that we don't have that counter support. And so like it's trying to help them understand and see how through history this has happened. And you, when you create like I have this timeline that I use in my presentations where it's, I can show you these things of history. It makes sense because people don't always know the history, don't see how that one moment was important or impactful. Because one thing I always look at now is like the civil rights movement. And I can list all, almost every man from the civil rights movement. Because when I was a kid, my father made me do research papers every summer. Like not a school project, like a Kelly household project was. <laughs> you had to pick somebody to go to the library and research them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were black men. And like when I got to college, a lot of them were alphas. But I was looking at like civil rights movement when I was in, in college and in grad school, I was like, but you realize that the black women that made sandwiches and fried chicken for like the marches, the black women that, you know, cleaned and laundered clothing for the pastors and whatnot, they were keeping the movement going so that the, if you don't have them doing that work, the movement could have very well stopped and ceased. And they were heavily organizing it. Like, you know, there was the, the men who were the speakers, but there were the women that were actually organizing it and actually using the framework of community activism. So it's, those don't, again, this is, you know, how even black history can get colonized because you frame it in one particular way and don't have these other uh, counter narratives to actually the truth, right? And so those are things that, you know, as men who become aware of this knowledge, got to continue to to put out that it's not that women just popped up. Women have always been there. Mm-hmm. The narrative is that they have it when they always have. Right? And looking at the fact that, like, you have a Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. you know, she, her getting on TV or at a press conference being angry and mad, mad and loud looks different than Malcolm doing that. Malcolm doing it socially acceptable. You know, you got this black woman on TV being loud and raising her voice and calling out stuff. Like, who does she, how dare she almost mm-hmm. uh, in the capacity she's a woman doing those things. So like, the, those politics are at play. But I think creating those, like, creating those, I think students like pictures and like stories. When they can see the stories, it makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got to find ways to make those stories make sense for them. In the ways that white media, right, and white audiences would cast that light, like this, this angry black woman stereotype. And there was plenty of hate coming from Malcolm, but it was never that... Right, he's too brash, or you write the same sort of words, obese, but also the ways that in the black community, right, that that same type of language that you had white media or you know white audiences grasping onto this Fannie Lou Hamer or you know an Ida B. Wells or what have you was the same language that was being used by black men in the black community who had the platforms and who were using it in you know it's really like patriarchal way. We gotta read. We got to get on Google. We got to find the documentaries and we got to watch. We got to read because, like, there's these blueprints that are already out there of this work, and we're only looking at certain pieces or uh, fractions of the work. But, like, there's so many people, particularly women through our history, that we're overlooking or we were not taught to look at um, that, are, that have done the work. And, like, when you start seeing it, it's like, oh, this makes I can borrow this from. Fanny Hamer's work, uh, and like there's so many quotes that like are, that are really movement worthy or aspirational or inspiring. Mm-hmm. Once you know who to look at beyond like, I always say particularly Martin and Malcolm because that's that's the large part of who we know. Yeah. They're like the big two. 
it's fascinating when you look if you know we're focusing on blackness in the black community when you look at the ways that Dr. King led right the movement he was this sort of this patriarchal uh, pastor he was, right he was in the black black church and was very much a proponent of him being in the spotlight at all times him being in the front of the lines right him giving all these speeches him traveling all around and he juxtaposed that with Ella Baker's work right who was very much so like I'm gonna organize everything make sure everything's together but you lead right you be at the front like she really wasn't like worried about and it was it was communal right and she was like bringing in these students these younger people right um, and you know that's obviously how like Snake was formed um, that's all Ella Baker right and when we look back now, what would have been more successful, right? If there was just this sort of one figure that's leading it all, right? Or if everybody in the community, if we're, if we're getting to a place where all of us are working for a collective cause. Way more sustainable yeah. what Ella did. Uh, more sustainable, more <clears throat> really practical, right? And, and um, But in some ways, Patriarchal kind of took, took the lead and said this is, this is the way. I mean, I, I think... Not here to talk down Dr. King. I think he was a great leader. He was needed, right? We needed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think there were times that there was some risks, right? Between you know, hey, this is the way we should go forward now that we've got all this momentum, and and then of course the government counted on just one, boom, and take him out, and then the momentum, you know, you know, cuts back. So well, and there's also politics, and like when we talk about media, because we. I just recently watched a documentary, but like you can talk about how like the media can leverage this is the black leader. So we we think about the '60s and whatnot. You you probably saw Martin and Malcolm on the news all the time because these are the two, and you can leverage and use them, and so you can create counter narratives about them to start making these rifts to delay and that as well. But easy to get co-opted. The system is designed to co-opt every every movement, so you gotta strategically strategize against that. That's why it's you know important to. P five and six steps ahead. Strategy. Whiteness and sexism. Hmm. <clears throat> and all the other isms. And Dr. Bates, you've helped me quite a bit sort of like unpack the ways that the masculinity that black men and the men of color are performing is one that we'll never actually be able to fully reach or get to in, in, in the ways that it's directly tied to, to whiteness and the formation of white supremacy in this country and white supremacist terror. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we think about the term hegemonic masculinity, right? It um, sets this kind of hierarchy of, you know, there's a particular masculinity that is um, has a lot of agency, right? I.e. white men, white, you know, straight, cis-performing Christian men, right? So... You know, at the at the height of masculinity, these men actually have the power to move this masculinity at will, right? And so, you know, we can see like when there's what we call nerd masculinity. We knew at one point in time <clears throat> that nerds weren't in, but we get these tech companies that you know, now nerds can work 90 hours and now we've moved them, or they moved the pin to accept that, oh, it's okay for you to be away from your family and understand that you're supposed to work all these hours. When we put that with other men that are not white, then it's different. It's, um, it's, it uh, doesn't apply. Um, they can't reach that. And so uh, the pen is moved for one set, but the pen can never be reached by others. Right. And so we are constantly trying to reach something that is unattainable simply because we won't hold those identities or because those, you know, whiteness is not going to benefit men of color or um, cisgender is not going to benefit gay or queer bodies. So we have to understand that the detriment 
of reaching something that's not attainable in and of itself is like harmful to us. Mm-hmm. And um, for those who have the power to move the pen, again, they're they're still being they're harmful to themselves because they're they have no 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 boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. So they can swing that pendulum from one end to the other, harming themselves, thinking that this is okay, right? And so that we've got to be careful that the the way masculinity is co-op. I do believe that there's a way that uh, masculinity, there's good masculinity, right? I, I think black women, black queer women actually do masculinity very well, right? Uh, this fluidity that they can be themselves um, and move along the line of femininity and masculinity at will, which is what I would say even biologically, right, from the feminine traits and the biological traits, the ability to move across that without penalty is what it was designed for. It was never designed to have only men act hard and only women act soft. It was designed that over time, over environment, over evolution, that you change and do validity with that. And we've constructed a society that says, no, we will not change, and if you do, we'll penalize you. And, And... and the only one that can change it is those who benefit the most. It's not a good, um, good for anyone. Then, mm. sort of the ways that men penalize other men, right? When there ever is a, there's a no homo, right? I chill out with that gay shit, right? Or you know, when when there ever is something said or something done or some type of mannerism that is looked at as feminine and how it is inherently misogynistic, right? Anything that rears too closely to femininity is wrong and gets punished severely as well as things i always talk about when i do um work and within greek life and like sessions with particularly fraternity men whether it's in uh, predominantly white fraternity spaces or in black fraternity spaces or multicultural fraternity spaces i always talk about i always ask the question who in this room is homo romantic Hmm. and all of them look at me like honestly what are you talking about like no and i was like okay let me rephrase this question who in this room values strong bonds with other men not sexual bonds but strong bonds Hmm. And they kind of like pause, and I say, well, if you're in a fraternity, you value strong bonds with men. So essentially, we all kind of carry, and we, kinda, we, we have these things. But like it's, it's about, to me, it's like a lot about, it's the language. And like, we don't have, a lot of times, people don't, don't have the language, or they don't have the knowledge yet. And so like, it's like giving them those nuggets, mm-hmm. and they begin to kind of figure it out, and kind of helping them put it into practice. Because mm-hmm. like when Ronnie, his point was just making, when he told me that one day, I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the things, but like, you're never gonna, I was like, that makes total sense, but like, you're never gonna actually reach this, whatever the standard is, you're not, as a person of color, you're not gonna get there, so you. And that that system knows how to, you know, reward and again, punish, so that in your, you know, attempt to reach this unattainable masculinity hierarchy, you punish people along the way to get there. Mm. So, it is at other people's detriment and as well as yours because you're pretty much a bad human, but you're getting rewarded, right? And so there's a juxtaposition of like how complicated this is. Right now I was talking about, use the example of capitalism. I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to give up Starbucks, right? And so, but I'm complicit, right, in capitalism in the ways and the things that I have to live, but also understanding that capitalism is detrimental to so many people, right? And so, if you're getting rewarded along the way, it's detrimental, but you, you, you kind of negotiate, well, that'll be okay. And, and then if you do get to the point of like, 
I want to be a good person. I don't want to do these things. Then in return, society punishes you, right? And so the system has these, you know, what I what I call, you know, um, barriers and protectors, mm. right? Like it, it continues to flow seamlessly. Like, you know, as I say, on the beach, trigger corona because these systems are in play and, and the disruption really only comes in when you realize, again, with knowledge and conscience and reflection, mm. right? Then the system is like, alert, alert. There's too much consciousness going over here um, because then when that happens, then you're able to kind of do some advancement. And the cycle of socialization begins at birth immediately. Yeah. So, once, I mean, when you're when we were all babies, we were beginning to get socialized into all this. So, like, it's almost like unless your parents were intentionally trying to do something totally different with how they were raising you, we were all socialized immediately into all this. For example, I have a, a nephew who's one years old now, and I remember when he was born, the, I mean, he was fresh, born by being here about an hour. They put him in, already put him in a blue cap, and so like we can use colors that are not like blue and pink are pretty much gender-specific colors. We talk about children, but like I was like, wow, they've already socialized my nephew. Um, like he had T-shirts like "Man, Man" or "Little Man." I was like, he's def he's an infant. So like those things are, are immediately you're sending him. Like my brother was getting basketballs and footballs, and I was like, you got to stop doing this. Because um, you're sending him these messages right now that he's learning and he's hearing that can, I mean, impact his his experience as a child and like navigating the world. Um, and we can we can like do the work to do things that were different from how we were raised. But like those, that's like two that I always use. People are like, oh, yeah, that that happens. And it goes into school and in the church and into media. We see that you know there's several studies where teachers are uh, you know having boys and girls play together and the boys are a little bit more rough. Even when the teacher steps in and says, hey, let's not do that, let's do this, the boys then either do one or two things, right? They either take an, uh, a, a toy that's not meant to be violent and make it violent, or they suppress it and wait till the teacher's not looking to do it later, which teaches them a condition of, well, I can't do it in this space, so then we will create spaces Right, this is why we can have locker room talk. This is why it's so natural for us to have boys time and things that we can do and it's and, and so effortlessly we we fall into like, ooh, this feels natural to just ah uh, be a man. Because we're taught from little boys that if we can't do that, you know, when um then we just hide it. When really we need to really start from birth, right, to to really neutralize, let them come to their own, you know, understanding what does it mean to be who they are, right? And, you know, I want to give a shout out to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, right? Because I think that they are exhibiting some some good parenting skills, right? Um, especially within the black community. Um, and, and I don't, you know, want to profess and say, you know, that it wasn't difficult or that parents don't want to do that. I, I think largely some would like to have, and I want to throw that there's probably a little bit more of an adjustment since the, the class and the affluency is a little bit, you know, better there. And so, but I mean, here's uh, something that can can break against the traditional understanding that we have with, with parenting and, and kids who want to identify the way they want to identify. Um, and so if we can start doing those things, um, as a parent, I try to make sure uh, my, my son doesn't know the difference between playing with toys as a taco trucks and barber dolls. But we, we make that language that like right. we boys have action figures, girls have yeah. dolls. Yeah. Yeah. 
They're literally the exact same thing. They're both plastic. And also remember that like children don't have the language um, or the advocacy to tell a parent, like when you do these things or I, I hear these things or I hear you arguing with the parent or something like that, they don't have the advocacy, like, like they, they don't have it. Like the parent's supposed to be their advocate. Yeah. And so we have to really be, con- I'm, I'm not a parent by the way, so I'm, I'm not judging any parents, but I'm just saying like we have to be cognitive of that yeah. um, because they don't have, um, the advocate is their parent supposed to be. Yeah. And I mean, when that doesn't happen, right? When you don't have that support from your parents and you don't, you know, feel f- like you can be yourself or be free from your parents, how it does lead to you, you're suppressing these emotions and you've never felt like you have an advocate in your parents who you can really talk to and be open to. You suppress all those things, how later in life that often turns into hypermasculinity and to, to uh, trying to perform this certain form of masculinity and, and how it often turns into deep violence. But also how, you know, when you're younger and you can't be yourself, like imagine if Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, you know, had said, oh, no, we're not about to raise a transgender kid, right, or a gay kid, you know what I'm saying, we're not about to do that, right, and told their son this, he more than likely would have killed himself, right, and and how we see these stories come out every year um, about, like, little black boys who killed themselves after coming out to their parents because their parents just wouldn't have it, right, and how so often it isn't the kids um, who are thinking these things, but the parents are just so close-minded to these things and so fearful of what their friends or family might think of that their son is gay, right, or that the son is, is not a man, right, or what have you, or a boy, which that also, they put that on their kids. Which is also important we talk about who we mentioned in like black history and like who've led our community, discussing the, the full spectrum of who it was. So whether it's men and women or black queer folks, black trans folks that have done work in our community, because we have this very common heteronormative narrative mm. of who did the work in the black community, who we celebrate and who we love. But there were lots of black queer folks, trans folks, yeah. that have done work for our community. Um, that we got to begin to tell their stories, um, like make their biopics, their movies, yeah. um, because they've done work that have got positioned us where we are. We have a mind of our own to go, but they've positioned us to thus yeah. far. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.